The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence. Fluence is a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team has championed energy storage as a cornerstone of our zero-carbon future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. And the Energy Gang is also brought to you by NorCal Control. As a total controls and monitoring solution provider, NorCal supports every phase of your project from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. Their DOS and SCADA systems are based on open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for ongoing subscription fees and restricted service contracts. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality to partner with you in building solutions that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Maintain, expand, and scale your system anytime, anywhere, with confidence. Visit norcalcontrols.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. And they say the government is frozen. After nearly a year of input from hundreds of experts, nearly 20 hearings and thousands of meetings, Democrats in the House are out with a major new report that spells out in great detail how they would govern toward net zero greenhouse gas emissions. They've also got a mega infrastructure bill with lots of clean energy provisions. We're going to dig in and discuss how it could become a reality after the election. Then, drama for pipelines and batteries. We'll look at a slew of legal decisions for pipelines in just the last couple of weeks and what they mean for the future of fossil fuel infrastructure. And the federal courts say federal regulators got it right on letting batteries play in wholesale markets. A new ruling provides clarity for developers, and it means collections of smaller storage systems can go ahead and act like a power plant. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me to discuss these stories. It's been weeks since I've talked to them. Catherine is there in Virginia. She's the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Uh, how are you? It's been a while. I know. I've been getting more sleep, but also having weird dreams. I don't know if you guys have had these COVID dreams, but things like trying to decide whether to save one of my dog's favorite toys from a rabid raccoon. And of course, I went for saving the toy. Like just weird stuff, you know? <laughs> You don't dream about thousands of pages of new infrastructure policy? <laughs> no, that's what your vacation did for me. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine is unfazed by the 3,000 pages of, of policy that uh, folks are digging through right now on infrastructure and climate change. That's what actually got that her the good sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Jigger Shaw is president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He is in Bethesda, Maryland. Are you... Phased, unfazed, Jigger, how would you rate your state of mind? I'm, you know, I'm fine. I have to say that it's extraordinary to me how uh, really amped up everybody is. So, like, all my Facebook pages are going wild. Like, all the school opening, closing stuff has got people pitted against each other, right? I mean, there's just a lot of energy right now in, in the public square. It doesn't feel like good energy. It doesn't feel like well, good energy to I me. I mean, you know, like, at least people are engaging. You know, at some point, hopefully, they, they come to some consensus. But right now, there's just a lot of raw energy out there. Well, let's talk about a major report that materialized from a lot of raw energy from activists and scientists and eventually lawmakers. So 
I take a couple weeks off for vacation, and then suddenly there's thousands of pages of new energy and climate material out of Congress. And we're going to talk about uh, two different pieces of, of, of writing. One is a, an actual bill, an infrastructure bill, and one is a major report that creates this blueprint for House Democrats on what they would do about climate change. So if you remember last year, when Democrats regained control of the House, they established a committee. It was called the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And it was allowed to address issues more holistically than standing committees. Um, And I'll have Catherine explain what that means exactly. It was a revival of a committee from over a decade ago that Republicans eventually killed. And so Nancy Pelosi said we should put this committee together and they held a bunch of hearings. Lawmakers held a bunch of meetings. They brought in scientists and other experts, and they created this 547-page report that clearly outlines how they would decarbonize all these different pillars of the economy. Um, and it's been called one of the most comprehensive climate policy plans in American politics. On the same day, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee came out with the Moving Forward Act. And this is a $1.5 trillion modernization bill that includes highways, electric vehicle charging, passenger rail, clean buses, clean aviation, and a lot of building, all of it climate conscious. So let's figure out what this all means and whether any of it will feed into real policymaking. So E&E News, Catherine, wrote that the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis report may be the most comprehensive climate policy plan in American politics, surpassing presidential candidates' proposals. Uh, We, of course, have a new proposal out from Joe Biden, which I think we're going to talk about next week. But uh, what do you think about that characterization? Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's very ambitious and very bold, but also really specific and concrete. And it has recommendations that are based on science. It has uh, a roadmap and an action plan very clearly laid out, but they still consider this just a jumping off point. So it's not the end all be all, but they definitely have taken a very broad view. They took a thousand meetings, over 700 substantive comments, as you said, uh, 17 hearings of which I testified at one of them, um, and just listened to a lot of people. So they feel like there is something for everybody in here. Not everybody's going to like everything, but there's something for everyone because it really is quite broad. It's set up with pillars. And yet it also looks, has a very systems approach look that connects the dots um, between economics and environment and justice and health and really does a very good job of making sure that there's this kind of through narrative as they look at very specific pillars. So when you showed up to testify, did you just plug in your phone and say, here, listen to these 350 episodes of The Energy Gang? (laughs) Right. Well, the thing is, a lot of the members of the committee actually are Energy Gang fans. So that's helpful because they already (laughs) had listened to a lot of it. Um, But when you look at the pillars, I thought these were really interesting. So the first pillar is infrastructure, which is an infrastructure includes electricity, transportation, buildings, water, telecommunications, oil and gas, really anything on infrastructure. The second is innovation and deployment. And they recommend setting up an energy justice and democracy program in that, which is really interesting. There's a manufacturing pillar. There is a breaking down barriers pillar, seeking to remove some of the tax breaks that oil and gas get. Um, There's a workers 
whole workers pillar. There's an environmental justice and disproportionately impacted communities pillar. There's public health. There's an agriculture pillar. There's one on resilience. There's one on land, water, and wildlife protection. There's one on national security and international leadership. And there's one on strengthening American institutions. So they've taken a very broad cross-economy approach. They did not self-edit, which was really important. There was no, no place where they said, you know, maybe this wouldn't get through. Maybe this is something that needs bipartisan support. They said that is not the case. We're going to put everything in, in, in here, and we're going to really be ambitious but very specific about what we recommend. So, Jigger, the three of us have probably read enough climate reports and climate plans to fill the Library of Alexandria. Uh, we've we've you know we've read about so many different climate pillars before. Um, so what's different about this report? I mean, does this feel any different than any of the other major bodies of work we've seen come out? Well, it certainly feels different. I think that you know one of the things that many folks uh, you know currently during this presidential election cycle right that don't really think about is. Everyone's fixated on the presidential election and not really fixated on the Congress. And when you think about who does the real work, right, what gets into the era stimulus bill in 2009, what gets into the Energy Policy Act of 2005 and 2007, it's not really dictated by the president or the White House. It's really, you know, guided. Sure, there's a couple of priorities that they care about, but most of the sausage making is done by the members. And I think what this report shows is just how knowledgeable the members really are and how how knowledgeable they've become. I mean, the other thing is actually um, just how much we more we have to learn in certain areas. Like I would say, like, in my opinion, the transportation pillar was extraordinarily weak. And when you actually read it, a lot of it was overlapping. Um, for instance, you know, you could have a lot of unintended consequences from providing so many subsidies for electric vehicles. Um and so, like, when you look, when you read the the electricity portion of it, I mean, they were they waxed poetically about how we needed to change wholesale markets. I mean, most people in our industry don't understand how wholesale markets work. I mean, the the fact that the Congress was able to actually wax poetically about how we need to change Enron era rules were was pretty damn amazing, right? But I think that there are also some holes in it, right? And so I think that just goes to show how much work we have to do on our side to make sure that they actually have the reports and the findings and the research and the thoughts necessary to read and then process into legislation. Yeah, Jigger, I totally agree. And I think that was not unintentional. So what they did was they pointed to policies that already had some legislation tied to it in a lot of cases. So there are a lot of proposals out there already that they were able to point to. But also there are gaps. And their hope is now, as I said, this is a jumping off point, as a staffer told me on the committee, where they want members who are sort of seeking, you know, what is my niche and what is my role? What it, what can I do on climate change to kind of take some of those up? in concert with stakeholders, outside stakeholders like ourselves, to say, like, maybe I can take this piece on that isn't developed yet, develop it more, have it become my initiative, and really move it forward. So I think there's a lot of ability in this to not only move on things that have been introduced already, but also to take up those gaps and try to develop them more. The one one of the shameless plug I'll make is that... Um you know, one of my good friends, Sean Caston, is now a sitting member of Congress and is on the select committee. Well, tell, tell us who I he mean, is. He Some built, people might not know who Sean is. 
so Sean Caston and his father, more importantly, Thomas Caston, um, started Recycled Energy Development, which is one of the most respected uh, combined heat and power companies in the country. And they sold it and, you know, made a lot of money. But, you know, I think that the 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 detailed knowledge that he has on interconnection and how wholesale markets work and how, you know, thermal power is treated uh, within a clean energy standard versus uh, renewable energy, right? And other things like it comes through the report, right? And I think that just having people who are not just willing to vote our way, but actually care deeply about climate issues as their number one priority and bring, uh, you know, all that knowledge to the Congress, I think, shows through the reports. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about this, because it does show the seriousness with which the Democrats are taking policymaking. Um, David Roberts, who we often cite on this show, had a long piece about the pillars of the report, and he ended the piece by talking about the differences between the approach to establishing a report like this uh, among Democrats and the lack of approach Uh, among Republicans. And I know, Catherine, that on Capitol Hill, you're working with Republicans, some of whom have come around on the climate issue. But in general, what we can say is that this report shows just how seriously Democrats are taking this as um, in order to craft potential policy. This is not a 20 page report outlining that climate change is a problem. I mean, this is a truly deep report trying to get into some of the hardest areas to decarbonize. There may be some holes, yes, but they're bringing experts from a wide range of areas and bringing a lot of different stakeholders together. So this is a pretty significant development in my view. Catherine, I know that you're working with Republicans on Capitol Hill, some of whom have come around on this issue, but contrast the approach from Democrats versus what Republicans are doing on this issue or not doing. Yeah, so the committee is definitely bipartisan. The ranking member to Kathy Castor, who is from Florida, she's the Democrat who's the chair of the select committee. Garrett Graves from Louisiana is the Republican. He believes in climate change. He sees what happens in Louisiana. Um, he was very receptive when I testified, certainly. And then I've met with his staff multiple times to talk about what they're thinking of. The issue is that their proposals are really around the margins. Their proposals are about some about agriculture and planting trees, some about CCS, some about innovation, but really not comprehensive like this. And I think what was important was that Castor and her team, which, by the way, she had a phenomenal team of, I believe, all women or mostly women. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Um, they really just said, we're not going to self-edit. We're not going to decide, is this something the Republicans can be OK with? We're just going to go forward with like everything that we think science tells us to do and then match that to policy. And then maybe we will find some things that we'll be able to work on in a bipartisan way. But it did not inhibit them in what they did. And I thought that was really, really important. Yeah, I also think that the framing of where we are at this moment um, leads you to a lot of Republican support, right? I mean, this particular president is not necessarily going to come around on climate. But I think when you think about the underlying differences between, let's say, Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign and, you know, Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, a lot of it came down to Buy American, right, which, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, starting to produce things here again, right, which frankly, the renewable energy industry, electric vehicle industry, et cetera, all needs, right, figuring out how to give people a decent wage, right, figuring out how to actually give people meaningful work, 
right? Which is a lot of what we talk about with infrastructure and, and, you know, and making people's communities better, right? And, and their hand in doing that. I think a lot of these topics are not necessarily easily bipartisan this week, but I think you will see them be much more easily bipartisan next year, uh, because it actually speaks to that voter in the middle that, you know, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, you know, were going after. Yeah, it was really interesting because I talked to Greg Dotson, who was the key staffer on the Waxman-Markey bill. He worked for Mr. for Chairman Waxman. Um, and when they did the American Clean Energy and Security Act in 2009, he said when they looked at the technology, and they had a lot on vehicle EV charging stations, but the only EV on the road at that point was the Tesla Roadster. And he just said, what is remarkable now is that we set forward something that we thought was ambitious, but people couldn't kind of imagine it because the technology wasn't there yet. And now we have come so far, you know, thanks to folks like Jigger and others who've really lowered the cost of deployment of all these technologies. We have many more EVs on the road. So when you put forward um, a, a plan and an, a roadmap for doing climate change, people can imagine what those solutions are because they it's, it's not science fiction. They're out in the world now. And that's that is also crucial. Can you remind us the drama that played out that resulted in this committee establishment in the eventual report? Because some of it was a result of activists buoyed by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming into Congress and kind of demanding Pelosi and others uh, do something greater on climate change. And then she had this kind of public back and forth about how to treat the committee and what they were supposed to do. And then eventually um, they established this committee and it resulted in this report. So uh, what was the influence, the outside influence that resulted in what we're talking about today? So certainly part of it was activism, but another huge piece of it that I think was even more influential was that there was this whole new crop of freshman Democrats that had handed Nancy Pelosi back control of the House, and they were really important to her. And they included people like very progressive new members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also people who are much more practical in the middle, like Sean Kasten, Connor Lamb, who's in Pennsylvania. And and all of those people thought this was important, and it was really um, that it was going, we were going to need some kind of action and leadership um, since that had simply been vacated over the last decade. The one other thing I'd add is that I think that the level of activism from Greta Thunberg and Sunrise Movement and others is super important. But I think what Nancy Pelosi said at the time, and I think, you know, has borne out to be true here, is that the process of the Congress is still super important. And I think that she was very careful not to make the select committee some sort of spectacle, which is why I think she didn't have AOC on the select committee. And in fact, had one of the people who understood that process and the gravity of the process, like Kathy Castor, to like actually run this process, right? And to really do their job behind the scenes, bring in all the experts, have all the hearings, and then re- and then have a report like this. Um, and I, th- I think that, you know, for those of us who you know, get caught up in the day-to-day news cycle. It's hard for us to recognize just how important it is for people to be squirreled away doing their work and actually building consensus amongst their um, amongst, amongst their colleagues. 
Okay, let's go to the Moving Forward Act. This is the big infrastructure bill, $1.5 trillion in the House. What are some of the most important elements of this infrastructure bill, Catherine? We'll talk about the, the politics next. Let's just talk about what's in it. Yeah, so the $1.5 trillion is broken down into several tranches. One is transportation. So the surface transportation bill is one of those bills that is up every few years. And there's one certainly in the Senate that has been passed out of committee, and this is the House piece of it. Um, There is a tax component. So that's called the Green Act that extends the renewable energy credits and adds energy storage and is very a broad green tax credit piece. And then there's energy and commerce that's more of the policy and science piece. And that has um, grid infrastructure in it. It has broadband, water, uh, greening of the fleet, like uh, charging infrastructure. And then uh, we were able to get an amendment in um, with Debbie Dingell to add $20 billion back in for a national climate bank, which is now called the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator. So this is a very broad bill that includes many components that are really designed to get people back to work now and to address infrastructure issues in a very targeted way. Jager, does anything stand out to you about the infrastructure bill that makes it unique? It's a lot of focus on electric vehicle infrastructure as part of this. Um, what in this catches your eye? Well, I also thought that, you know, the $100 billion that they allocated for affordable housing infrastructure, I thought was really interesting. And that also included sort of some of the energy efficiency components and things that we care about. Um, And then they also had broadband in here as well, right, which, you know, is clearly valuable to when, you know, to the fact that everyone's being educated at home and don't have high-speed internet. So I think, I mean, part of this to me is also broadening the definition of infrastructure. I think for many of us, we think about electricity, just because we thought we talk about it a lot. And in this case, it's more transportation, which is around structurally, you know, uh, deficient bridges and figuring out how to repair roads and putting another $100 billion into public transit. And then they had a bunch of stuff in there, which I think was really interesting around making um, cities more walkable and bike lanes and that kind of stuff, which I thought was great. But I think that the part that 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 I think is interesting or most interesting is that they they really did, you know, broaden this to include some of these other infrastructure pieces. I mean, even a hundred and some billion dollars to reopen schools is in the Moving Forward Act, right? So um so I think that 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 now that we're talking about this sort of Green New Deal, I think people are starting to realize that like that all of these things are interconnected and, you know, figuring out how broadband, you know, works with smart infrastructure is critical. Like it's hard to bring in a lot of these cost effective solutions that we have into rural areas without figuring out how to get the data out of those places to actively manage the infrastructure. Yeah. And ironically, um, because of COVID, um, both in the climate crisis report and also in Moving Forward Act, there was a lot more about healthcare and hospital infrastructure and how important that is. And I think that was another piece that may just not have been included in any of this um, unless we'd had this pandemic at our doorstep. I mean, even the Postal Service piece I thought was interesting, right? It's $25 billion to help the Postal Service, but also they, they you know, basically said that 75% of all new vehicle purchases had to be electric. Um, and that's really interesting because, remember, the average postal vehicle is basically on its last leg right now. They're about six years behind 
on replacing their fleet, right? They were supposed to have issued this our new RFP during the Obama administration. And so they actually need to replace all those vehicles. So the fact that you'd have something like that that says electric means it not, might not just be 75%, it might be 100% that go electric. Well, no amount of aspiration and imminent need is a match for the gatekeeper in the Senate, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So he says this bill is DOA. Uh, Trump has mocked elements of this bill. Uh, so this is not going anywhere, unfortunately. What are the what is the the political future for this ambitious infrastructure bill, Catherine? Yeah, you kind of laid it out pretty well there. So I mean, <laughs> Mitch McConnell loves using everything, no matter what it is, uh, by calling it the Green New Deal and saying those words as if he's smelling something bad. Um, and so you know, everything he paints with that brush, even though most of this is really about getting people back to work in a way that's sustainable. Um, there are a few things in the Senate that could go forward if he allows for some more spending. And it, it, everything, again, you know, I've thought it was fluid in March. It is super fluid now because the pandemic is picking back up or never slowed down, really. And we thought we'd be in a really different place now than we are. But as I said, the surface transportation bill has passed out of committee, and I know that Chairman Barrasso um, really wants to make sure that that goes through. It does have a climate title in it, so that is something there. Also, um, Energy and Natural Resources Chairman Murkowski and Ranking Member Manchin passed the American Energy Innovation Act, which is a piece of authorization for a lot of which has clean energy in it and energy innovation um, that she's been wanting to get through. This is her last year as chair. She really wants to get this done. That's another piece that if you actually funded it could get some good work done. Um, And then the other kind of sleeper is the defense authorization bill, which has to pass every year. It is like the one thing besides appropriations because it basically tells the Department of Defense how to spend their money. And a lot of about 500 amendments were added to that, including energy storage uh, programs that were added in. There was a Senator Collins bill, um, some of the critical materials, pieces and titles that were in the Murkowski Mansion bill have been added to the defense authorization as amendments. So we'll see. It, it really will depend on what McConnell wants to do. And he will, of course, take a lot of his cues from the president, whether the president wants to get something done um, and try to look like he's bringing jobs back before the election. So I can imagine some of our listeners sitting here listening to us have this conversation about a massive report and a massive bill that are not going anywhere right now. So why are we having this conversation? Why is this so important? And what are the stakes going forward for true policymaking on climate change. Catherine, you go first. Yeah, so I see a few things. One is starting to socialize a lot of these ideas and getting them out into the open and getting people used to them. The second is kind of teeing up and putting a roadmap out there for a new administration should uh, Vice President Biden be elected to the presidency. And that's really important because, yes, he's going to have a plan and want to get things done. But Congress, as Jigger said, is really going to be driving the driving the train here. So the um, electric bus, the electric bus, the electric Um, forklift. (laughs) But, yeah, so it's teeing up for next year. And it's also putting it's it's getting these folks ready to really be bold next year. And it's getting them used to this sort of leadership. And I think that's really important. So it's getting the public used to it. It's getting members of Congress used to it. And I think it's going to tee us up for uh, a new year, hopefully. Jigger, final word? Yeah, what I would add is basically that 
we still have about 500,000 people that are out of work in our sectors. Um, and McConnell has said that he is open to passing one last COVID bill before we get into full election season. So this is our moment, right? If you want something to get passed in a bill, right, this is the time. So if you want direct pay on renewable energy credits, if you want any of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying it has a snowball's chance of hell of getting in. But I am saying that if you want it in, this is the bill that will get it in. So to the extent that you want to make your voice heard and you want to like, you know, express your support for some of these programs, um, this is the last sort of legislative opportunity, I think, to put it in until the election. Yeah, man. Keep pushing. Let's hit the pause button very quickly before we move on and talk about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. Uh, It accelerates the deployment of renewables. It helps the world reach critical emission reduction targets. And it delivers cost-effective grid services. Are you ready for the era of energy storage? Well, Fluence is. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. Their fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack combines modular, factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence with the latest safety advancements embedded in every level of product design and delivery. Scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. Every NorCal Controls project begins with a simple question— What approach best serves the customer? NorCal Controls offers turnkey DOS and SCADA solutions based on proven open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for restrictive service contracts and ongoing fees. The NorCal Way offers you a dedicated team, proven engineering excellence, customizable solar solutions, and unparalleled customer support. Because they're based on open architecture hardware and software, NorCal systems are designed to be easy to maintain, test, and troubleshoot. As the only system integrator in solar PV that comes from a traditional power generation background, NorCal has earned a reputation as the strongest in controls. To learn more, visit norcalcontrols.net. Okay, so let's go to pipelines. A decade ago, coming off the defeat of the climate bill in Congress, environmentalists turned their attention to pipelines, Keystone XL being the most prominent one. Through a combination of legal challenges and old-fashioned activism, the strategy was to make fossil fuel infrastructure a visible villain. It created this very strong narrative momentum and buoyed environmental groups after a bruising defeat in, uh, in the Senate. But it came with mixed practical success over the years. The last few weeks have brought a bunch of wins for groups trying to stop pipelines. And I'm just going to read off a few of them here. So in April, a federal district court in Montana surprised a lot of people when it told the Army Corps of Engineers that pipeline builders can't just dig stuff up and discharge it into waterways that the Army Corps has been allowing. The ruling sent shockwaves through the oil and gas industry. Uh, Dominion Energy and Duke Energy were also partners in this new 600-mile pipeline to move gas from the Utica and Marcellus shales in West Virginia through Virginia and into North Carolina. Uh, And viewing that Montana decision, they said, we're canceling this pipeline. Uh, And then Dominion went on and said, we want out of the pipeline business anyway. We're going to sell it to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. 
The federal appeals court also slammed FERC for the way it's been treating landowners who are hosting uh, pipelines on their land. Uh, A Michigan state judge temporarily shut down an old controversial pipeline known as Line 5. The D.C. District Court ordered the Dakota Access Pipeline shut down over permitting issues. A Michigan state judge temporarily shut down an old controversial pipeline known as Line 5 that carries propane and oil. The D.C. District Court ordered the Dakota Access Pipeline shut down over permitting issues. Uh, There's a stay on that one, so oil can keep flowing in the meantime, but... Boy, a lot going on here in the world of pipelines. It seems like uh, there is just so much to unpack. Uh, So, Jigger, what is happening here? Well, you know, I think that it's good to put this stuff into context first, and then I think we can, you know, talk about what's happening. You know, the the United States of America has been on a on a pipeline building spree for decades. Right. So we have about 190,000 miles of liquid petroleum pipelines, 300,000 miles of natural gas transmission lines, and 1.3 million miles of local natural gas distribution lines. Right. So we've been busy and we have a lot of pipelines. The interesting thing about these pipelines is they are by far the most profitable projects in the United States. Right. Because they come with regulated rates of return that often are disconnected with reality. So you're talking about regulated returns of 12, 13, 14%. Wouldn't you love to get a regulated return of 12, 13, 14% from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? So for decades, people were just getting approvals. FERC would just like be sloppy and say, oh, there's a bunch of stuff here where it's approved, it's done, right? And then, you know, what happened was sometime in the 2000s, when Sierra Club was figuring out what was happening with coal plants, they realized, you know, a lot of folks just didn't do the paperwork properly. When they were required to do 17 permits, they only got 12 and then, you know, submitted for approval. And, you know, and the Sierra Club wasn't as interested in natural gas pipelines as much as coal, but you found other activists who were really interested. So then you had Josh Fox with Gasland, who inspired thousands of people, right? I mean, it led to the banning of natural gas fracking in New York. It led to a lot of local activists saying, ooh, these pipelines are vulnerable. They've got to get special permission to go under the state park that we like to visit. They have to get special permission to go under wetlands, right? Most of these things were being done without anyone knowing, right? It was a really quick sort of, we dig this part up, we lay a pipeline, we cover it back up with dirt. No one's the wiser. It grows back. You know, the grass grows back. You know, no one even knows that it's there. And, you know, suddenly there are a lot of people watching. And, you know, and so now what's happening is, Every time the gas folks make a mistake, like in New Jersey, for instance, you know, they, um, you know, cracked a house's foundation by accident, right? They like had some spills in a wetland. And so now every time something goes wrong and you know that it goes wrong regularly, you now have someone watching. You now have a Montana court that's being asked to actually adjudicate it or another court that's being willing to adjudicate it. Um, You separately had the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission not following its own processes. So when people were appealing pipeline decisions, they had this thing called tolling, where they would just not set a date for the appeal. Now a federal court has said, you can't do that. If someone wants to appeal a decision that you've made, you can't just sit there and not set a hearing date for the appeal. You have to actually set a date for the appeal. So now you've got, you know, uh, folks that can't run out the clock. So before, 
a lot of utilities were saying, oh, we can just finish the pipeline and then we'll do the appeal. By that point, the pipeline's done. So what are they going to do? All they can do is just give us a fine. Well, now, you know, they're not going to be allowed to do that anymore. So under those auspices, the Dominion Duke team were like, you know, I don't think we could force this anymore. You know, and as the cost started going up, they said, you know, let's get out. And, you know, and so from Buffett's perspective, it's a great investment, right? From Buffett's invest perspective, he's buying one of the largest natural gas pipeline networks in the country. And there won't likely be a lot more natural gas pipeline built because of all this activism. Catherine, when it comes to some of these legal challenges, again, each of these is a little bit different. Are these legal challenges coming from the environmental movement? I mean, is this just a legal strategy that has been successful? Well, so there are a bunch of prongs of it. So there's the legal issue. There is the local activism that Jigger was talking about, the kind of like, don't don't destroy my land. It's all I've got. Um, and they go hand in hand because many of those folks have linked up with the environmental groups that have the money to have the, to force the legal challenges. Yeah, but then there's also another huge piece of it, which is communications and media and showing people what's going on. And the first real visible opposition to any of this was Standing Rock with the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2015. I spoke with Jody Archambault, who worked in the Obama administration. She was in the Office of Public Engagement and the Domestic Policy Council, the first uh, Native American woman who was brought in. Her brother, her younger brother, is chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And she talked about what indigenous people for a long time have been fighting for, who, you know, were there long before the environmentalists decided to take on these issues. Um, But really showing and demonstrating to the rest of the world through communications and media and stories that they needed to care. They needed to care about the land. They needed to care about these people that they had that have been done wrong for a long time. And it and it gave, um, it gave a picture to people. And it also, I think, empowered others to say, "Oh, this is something that we can actually push back on." So once you have sort of not the necessarily far edges of a movement, but kind of pushing toward the middle, and people are starting to get and under gain a better understanding of what's really going on then policy can follow and the legal argument has something to attach to. I mean, I think of it is not dissimilar from the gay marriage movement, where by the time the Supreme Court allowed gay marriage, like the country was already there. And I feel like this is a similar situation where the country is going to be there on pipelines when these legal decisions are being made. So, Jigger, let's go back to the Warren Buffett piece. Why would Berkshire Hathaway acquire this pipeline, these natural gas assets from Dominion and Duke? I mean, what is the play here? Because there's a lot of alarm from Wall Street about stranded assets in gas and in oil. And Berkshire Hathaway gave a major loan to Occidental Petroleum. They've acquired railway companies that are now not shipping very much coal. So what's the play here and what is the risk? Well, I mean, I I think that both things can be true at the same time, right? So you can have a movement that is trying to get us to reduce our natural gas usage over time by 2050. And it could be a fabulous investment to buy a natural gas pipeline network that is currently being used and people are paying full price for, right? So, So Warren Buffett on the Occidental Petroleum investment, I think he'll probably do fine because it's debt, but but no, he admitted that that was a bad investment. But I think that 
the natural gas pipelines, right? This is like owning transmission, right? Ultimately, like you get paid for every molecule that goes through the pipeline and they're already built. So the construction risk is gone and um, they're going to be around for a long time, right? And if it's got 50% less gas flowing through it, well, then you just charge double, right? To get the same amount of money. So the, the um, I don't think Warren Buffett's going to lose money on the gas transmission, um, but at the, at the same time, he could, of course, have less gas flowing through it over time. So I talked to Allison Good, who's with S&P Global. She's a reporter, and she tracks the pipeline issues, and she's been particularly following Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And, you know, they have not started construction there. Um, and the cost has ballooned from $5 billion to $8 billion and is continually going up. The the employers, the employees that they tout as you know creating all these jobs really are super specialized or, and are not local, so there is no local benefit. The issue is you have to move shale gas out of Appalachia, and they need pipelines to do that. So there is another pipeline, Mountain Valley, that is almost done construction, um, and that will be one of the conduits. So there, it's not like there's only one project, and if you stop that, there's not another way for them to do it. There are other ways, and there is this other project out there. One thing that she pointed to was that Texas um, is considered the friendliest place in the world for gas. Um, and even in Texas, they're having issues um, with the Permian Basin polluting water and people starting, local people starting to realize this is not great for us and for our quality of life. So I see this as something that um, people are starting to become more aware of and ask questions about and really dive into what's happening here in my neighborhood, in my community, and how can I push back on it? So is this some ma- fundamental reexamination of pipelines happening right now in America? Well, reexamination is a strong word, right? I mean, this is the first time anyone is examining it, right? So it only really started about 15 years ago in the same way that no one was examining, you know, integrated resource plans of utility companies until like 20 years ago. So like, I think that we're in a situation now where there's just a lot of focus on some of these automatic, quote unquote, automatic processes in the past. Um, And there's more scrutiny on the Army Corps of Engineers and all these other players. The one thing I would say, though, is I think we should all be careful what we wish for. My sense is, is that today it's natural gas pipelines, tomorrow it's solar and wind plants. And so for a lot of these large, you know, 2,000 acre solar farms or, you know, 10,000 acre wind farms, you're going to see very similar local activism. And while we, I think, are better at getting on top of community relations and actually not trying to get things under the radar screen, but actually confronting things head on, I also think that there is um, some uh, trade-offs that we're all going to have to start discussing more openly around if you want to decarbonize our country and you want to do it quickly and inexpensively, then you are going to have to do things that some local folks don't like. And I don't know how to stop that unless everyone just wants to go fully distributed microgrids and pay a much higher premium for that. Well, except that uh, solar, if you do pollinator farms, you can build solar and wind such that you're actually enhancing the land rather than destroying it and you're not polluting the water. I think that makes a big difference. Um, There was a really interesting podcast that Slate had called What Next? And they interviewed Lindsay Gilpin of Southerly, who's a media activist in the Southeast. She lives in Durham. And she talked about how 
the Smithfield hog industry, which has been losing cases recently, but they have been historically polluting water and land for decades of people who are, you know, really under, you know, underserved in North Carolina and elsewhere. That kind of got people thinking about how can I protect my air and water from a very local level? And I think that's a really different question than, you know, I, I agree, Jigger, that we still have a lot of local work to do. But it's a really different question when you are impacting water. Well, sure. But like in the state of Maryland, every single county in the state of Maryland tried to ban community solar. Every single county, right? Anne Arundel County, Baltimore County, Montgomery County, right? We spent a lot of time fighting those back, right? And, you know, largely it's because like, they're like, well, I know I have to see 12 sets of ugly power lines everywhere I go, but I'm used to that. I don't want solar farms in my agriculture reserve, right? And I just think that we all should just be very careful, right? I, I think that in the Dakota Access Pipeline, they were sloppy, they were really sloppy, and they absolutely did not care about uh, the the tribes there. And there were lots of solutions that they could have had to go around the tribes and to be respectful of other people, right? And they separately were sloppy about, you know, just having oil spills on a regular basis, which didn't make their case any stronger, right? And so there are a lot of people who deserve to be shut down just because they're undisciplined and sloppy. But I think if we allow folks to just say, hey, I want all the modern benefits of modern energy, but I don't want any of the challenges that come from modern energy, then I think we're all going to, you know, face a day of reckoning. Well, certainly the difference here is uh, that a lot of these pipeline developers have headwinds and very well-funded environmental groups that are going to be mounting these legal challenges, and you don't have the same headwinds with solar and wind projects. That is not to discount the problems that the local issues that you're going to face uh, with citing many of these bigger projects. But that, to me, feels like a big difference maker. Let's go to another regulatory story that is very good news for the storage business. So back in 2016, federal regulators at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, this is the group, of course, as many of you know, that oversees the transmission of wholesale electricity, made a decision that was very crucial for energy storage, particularly battery storage. Order 841 was the first indication that businesses that deploy and aggregate stored electricity could participate in wholesale markets, just like a natural gas fired plant, for example. It opened up new ways to potentially make money with storage. But soon there was a lawsuit from folks in the power sector. It led to years of uncertainty. And now the D.C. Federal Appeals Court said that FERC was correct and uh, that the rulemaking can go forward. That opens up a new opportunity for storage that has been a long time in coming. So we're going to talk about how this played out and what it's going to do for batteries here in the U.S. Catherine, what's the play-by-play on Order 841, 841? What did it do? Yeah, so I, I want to just give a little tiny bit of history here for storage because storage has been fighting for a really... We love your regulatory history. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're going to go back in time. We'll take a little journey down <laughs> the FERC pathway here. So in 2011, 
there was a FERC Order 755. And what that did was it allowed for storage to be paid to do frequency regulation on the grid. So that was like the first thing. And and it allowed, Beacon Power was the one who really pushed that forward because of their fly, flywheel technology. That really gave a little bit of an opening to storage facilities that were providing services and not getting paid for them. Then there was a next order, Order 784 came out two years later that allowed for speed and accuracy to be valued on the grid for storage. And then in 2018, there was 845, which was an interconnection um, order that allowed for storage to be, to be defined in the same way as generation. And it allowed for interconnection to be listed at lower than the capacity nameplate so that storage could really participate participate more fully. And yet, storage really didn't have a full participation model on how does it how does it actually benefit the grid and then get paid for that? Because that is how you're able to have projects pencil out. You have all these incredible values that storage can provide and they have not been able to be compensated for those values. And so that's what 841 did. It said, look, you need every single system operator has to come up with a participation model for energy storage no matter where it is on the grid. And the states said, wait a second, we don't want you in our turf. We don't want you to tell us how distribution-sided storage or customer-sided storage would be able to participate because that's our territory. And they took this, FERC took this to the circuit court and the circuit court said, yeah, this we find no foul here, so we deny the petitions. That's the words of the judge. <laughs> um, and so that's what it does. It clarifies the fact that no matter where storage is in the grid, it is still able to participate, not only get paid for, but actually provide value to the entire grid. Okay. So everybody seems to like storage. The power sector is gaga about storage. We, I think we've, we've said many times on this podcast that storage is the bacon of the electric grid. It makes everything better. So, you know, you have an, all sorts of utilities and power sector groups that talk very favorably about storage. But yet you have a number of groups, uh, including the Edison Electric Institute, that took issue with this rule. Why? Well, I think Catherine made a good point around... Um, you know, this was really a jurisdiction thing for them between state and federal. But I I would say it's deeper than that, right? One of the challenges is every major commodity system in the world features storage, right? If you're in an agriculture business, you have grain elevators. If you're in the fuels business, you have huge, you know, fuel depots where you can, you know, store fuels. Electricity is the only place where everyone's like, uh, we don't need storage. We can actually just make everything real time. Demand and supply should be managed in real time, you know, basis, right? And then they spent billions of dollars in arcane sort of Rube Goldberg, you know, contraptions to be able to manage the grid. So for instance, we have all this natural gas capacity, some of which only runs like 25 hours a year, just in case, so that they can actually keep this whole thing going, right? Battery storage comes along and says, we are way cheaper and way better than all the stuff that you paid for in the 1990s to do this, right? And everyone agrees, which is why GE and Siemens have laid off a bunch of people in their natural gas turbine business, right? Now, these utilities are trying desperately to push through more rate base of natural gas power plants before the gig is up, right? 
And this is just one more tool in their arsenal to try to get unsuspecting ratepayers to pay for infrastructure that no one needs to be able to get through before everyone wises up, particularly the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Like, that's what was shocking to me, is that Nehruk actually decided to be part of this lawsuit. And they were like, oh, it's jurisdiction. No, it's because they basically made a whole bunch of bad decisions over the last few years, and they would love for their utilities to get more time to, you know, get paid back for this infrastructure before they're going to have to call the stranded assets. I was having a conversation with Annie LePay, who's the managing director of campaigns at Volt Solar the other day, and she characterized this situation, Jigger, as the last drink at the bar, that utilities are, are, are it's, it's last call at the bar, and they're all scrambling to get their final drink in. What's that song? It's closing. like closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> Oh my. Oh my. But it's but but the thing but I just want to make sure that everyone understands just how important this is, right? Forget about battery storage from, you know, the large-scale folks. Like we all love them, Fluence and all the other players who are building, you know, 200 megawatt hour batteries in the middle of nowhere. Fine. Right? But think about it, once this gets fully implemented, right? Which FERC order 745, which was to give demand response and load control their due, is finally getting implemented a full 10 years after John Willinghoff passed it. That's only in California to date. Um, you know, like that, if we build all, all of these school buses, these electric school buses that are in Kathy Castro's report, right? Or we do all this other stuff. The central tenant to this infrastructure is that that battery storage needs to get paid for other services, right? That's how it works. School buses don't make any sense to be electric, ex- except if you care about the health of the kids, obviously, that are riding them, um, unless you get paid to do all the grid services. And right now, there is no transparent way to do it. So Dominion in Virginia has said, well, just let us rate base it. Let us make 12% on it. We don't really want an active market there. Con Ed, by the way, is the same in New York City. Demand Energy and all the other players have said, look at how much money we're going to save you in distribution costs if you build a lot of storage here, right? And Con Ed has been super slow to provide full transparency on how they're going to reimburse battery storage for those, uh, for those services, right? And so this fight isn't over. This fight is just one which says to all the players, enough is enough. Come to the table and start doing your job. Yeah. And also, I would note that the decision also allowed states on, you know, one by one basis to tell facilities, storage facilities, that they have to choose whether they participate locally or in the wholesale markets, um, which is called dual participation. And, you know, certainly I've been fighting that for a long time for distributed energy resources. Um, You know, I think that the states are worried that somehow that the that the wholesale market is going to usurp, you know, their own jurisdiction on, you know, how they control utility rates, how they're able to allow for net energy metering and other services to be provided without having to, you know, deal with that going into the wholesale market. And interestingly enough, FERC is having their meeting today where they're deciding on that NERA case that we've talked about and the PERPA case. So we'll see after today what happens and how FERC goes forward with this. I get the sense that this was a huge win for Chairman Chatterjee. He promised that he would do this before he was confirmed. He, his, his quote is, 
This is one of the single most significant actions taken by a government agency to address carbon mitigation and the transition to a clean energy future, at which point I believe I could hear his mic drop. Um, So I think that this for him is kind of the culmination of what he wanted to get done on storage. And I think the other pieces that EEI was really worried about and the states were really worried about are not right now in the same place as storage. Uh, Before we close this part of the conversation down, I I have one more question on the implications for future storage projects. So this provides a lot of clarity for developers, and it opens the way for wholesale markets to better integrate storage. The question is, what happens to distributed storage? So for many years, we have been experimenting with and talking about uh, aggregated commercial, industrial, and residential battery systems pulling them together, creating a virtual power plant and bidding, you know, bidding that resource into a wholesale market. Um, We had a conversation about Sunrun's acquisition of Vivint on the interchange between um, Shale Khan and Austin Perea, who's a senior analyst for U.S. Solar at uh, GTM and Wood McKenzie. And he basically said, like, yeah, this is a this is a big deal, but we don't really see those business models coming together until the late 2020s. So. What does this rule do for that kind of storage integration? And will it accelerate that kind of development? Well, remember, that kind of storage integration, distributed storage integration, only is allowed to happen through a gatekeeper. It doesn't happen directly. So the reason why it's working in California is because East Bay uh, CCA, right, led by our friend Nick Chassett, um, decided to cut a deal. Right for resource adequacy, um, and instead of actually having having to hire a natural gas generator, he was able to use Sunrun batteries ganged together in his territory to do that. As soon as Southern California Edison and PG&E saw him doing that, they were like, "Well, crap, we can't be like cut out of this process." So then they cut a deal with Sunrun, and you know, seven other CCAs have cut a deal with with uh, like Ohm Connect, for instance, right, which is doing demand response and load control, and so. So that's working great, right? And there are lots of reasons why these utilities should do it. So for instance, the New Hampshire Electric Co-op in New Hampshire only is a wholesale uh, co-op, right? They don't have any generation. They just buy off a knee pool and they're just energy traders. Being able to take all of these assets at homeowners in their territory and trade it in the market reduces their costs of wholesale power, right? And so there's a reason for them to do it and there's a reason for them to pay people to do it. Right, but there is always a gatekeeper. So Sunrun can't gang all this stuff together and register themselves into Nepal and and bid that capacity themselves without, you know, permission. Right, and that's that's what this huge fight is about. Right, and that's why I think the U.S. solar analyst was talking about the late 2020s because you know there isn't free and unfettered access into these revenue markets. Yeah, so I reached out to Kelly Speaks Bachman, who is the head of the Energy Storage Association, and I said, I need a quote for this segment of the show. And her first response was, woohoo. And she said, oh, no, I should probably give you more than that. She said, finally, this portion of 841 is clarified that distributed resources can participate and provide value regardless of where they're connected on the grid. And she went on to say, this just removes the uncertainty. This will this will cause implementation now. And yes, they're gatekeepers. But I think what this does is it rem- it says to states, look, it's coming. I think it's going to be before late 20s. (laughs) I think it will be sooner than that, because I think this is here and now and now we're getting all that legal framework underpinning. 
If any national news outlet wants to hire Catherine, she rolls into this podcast more deeply sourced than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's an implication on, on me. No, it's only because I'm so no, insecure it's, it's, and I feel like I'm not going to know enough and Jigger's going to like totally own me. Oh, that would never happen. <laughs> uh, let's go to our free electrons now. Jigger, what is your story this week? So I wanted to highlight a piece from our really dear friend, Justin Gway, uh, in Green Tech Media today. Um, he posted an article called, uh, The World Needs a Cash for Coal Clunkers Program. And it really caught my attention because um, one of the programs in Kathy Castor's report from the Select Committee is a cash for clunkers program for vehicles. And, you know, Senator Chuck Schumer has also talked about it, which I think was like $100 billion to buy up old cars. That program doesn't work. For those of you who think it works, it doesn't work. Do not suggest buying up old cars. But what could work is Justin's program, which is cash for clunkers for old coal plants. Like you could actually use $10 billion, that's it, not 100, to buy up all the coal plants that are left in the United States and shut them down responsibly and compensate the communities locally um, and, and get us to a much better place on climate. And that's a tiny amount of money compared to what is being thrown around these days in Washington, D.C. So I would highly recommend people read Justin's piece in Green Tech Media. Yes, yes, yes. It, I mean, this is the kind of messaging we should be shouting from the rooftops because it actually isn't that expensive to buy out some of these coal plants or even the coal mines and create training opportunities to get people in different areas of employment. I understand that there's a pride issue. I understand there's a lot of friction. But like when it comes to the actual dollar amount, it's not that expensive to buy up some of these assets and then find other work for people. Well, and it ties to our conversation a few weeks ago when we talked about Instead of passing a clean energy standard, which would be awesome, but is hard to do, you know, we could just buy people's votes, right? <laughs> we can buy their love. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so there were a couple things that happened this week that are kind of tied together and back to our top story. The Government Accountability Office, which is kind of the investigative arm of the government, did a report on the climate calculations that the Trump administration has done and the social cost of carbon. So um, the Obama administration said in 2016 that the social cost of carbon was $50 a ton would be $50 a ton by 2020, which would mean about $82 a ton by 2050. And the Trump administration lowered it by seven times. So they said it would be between a dollar and seven dollars a ton um, by 2020 and eleven dollars a ton by 2050. And what that does is it it reduces what you're looking at as the longer term impact of any policy that you put into place and certainly justified for them the cost benefits of deregulation because they could just discount any kind of human impact to removing regulation for greenhouse gases. And it really just was set too low to factor at all in the damage of greenhouse gases. At the same time this week, uh, the Trump administration put out some National Environmental Policy Act rollbacks. It's a 50-year-old bill to really, really seriously limit public input into actions on permitting, but also to not factor in the cumulative impact over time. And I think it's something we need to watch out for is how do you think about impacts over time and how they accumulate? 
and 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 really look forward to that and make sure that the data we are collecting are accurate and are really factoring in things that would heretofore be considered externalities, but really should be internal to every decision we make. So what I'm hearing is that they're saying there is a cost to carbon, though, Catherine. It's just really, really little. (laughs) (laughs) So My Free Electron is all about the uh, behavior and desires of podcast listeners. We know a decent amount about our podcast listeners here on this show. We've done a number of surveys over the years. We understand where people fit into the industry, where they are in terms of their knowledge of the industry, and we tailor our subject matter accordingly. I saw this new data from Nielsen, though, recently showing that a lot of podcast listeners are actually shopping for new automobiles and shopping for cleaner automobiles. So they found that while shelter-in-place orders were happening around the country, this spring, 35 million people were shopping online for vehicles. And 10.5 million of those people were active listeners to podcasts. And based on their survey, they found that podcast listeners were 39% more likely to be hybrid drivers. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting. Well, they probably also found that 10.5 million of them were trading Tesla on Robinhood. (laughs) Oh, my. It's crazy what's going on out there. Uh, That just means that more automobile makers need to sponsor this show. (laughs) That's the end, folks. Uh, Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixed the show. We are so grateful for your listenership. Thanks for sticking with us while we were away for the last couple of weeks. Um, Good to be back with you. If you want to show your support and help us grow, send out word on social media, email a link to your friends and colleagues. Um, Even better, give us a rating and review at the podcast app of your choice. We can, of course, be found anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're going to be back next week. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.